back to Pod Sequentialism, a offshoot of the Pop Sequentialism uh, blog and recorded here at Meltdown Studios at Meltdown Comics. I am your host, Matt Kennedy. And this week we're going to tackle a bit of a controversial subject. Um, it's always something in the zeitgeist. It seems like it has been for most of my adult life and uh, a very a very big subject on television radio, especially talk radio, and lately in comic books. And that subject is observing gay superheroes. A few years ago, and um, you can tell there's always something exciting happening here at Meltdown, so if you hear a little bit of ancillary noise, there could be a a radio drama happening next door with Nerdist, or there could be, um, you know, full-on fandom going crazy in in the other room. But uh, I used to write for Forces of Geek, and I had a column that ran for, I think, about three years called um, Manufacturing the Media. And one of the subjects that I wrote about back in September 2009 was the subject of gay superheroes. And my concern had been that in modern society, and especially in, in modern America and North America, one out of every five people on the planet is gay. And those percentages do not reflect in the fiction that we read in comic books. And I've tried to address that issue over the years, and um, I find that living in Los Angeles, I think that we have a pretty diverse uh, culture, and a lot of the people that will come into the comic shop will come from every walk of life, and we have probably a very diverse ethnicity pool and sexual preference, preference pool. And so um, LGBT issues are often discussed in in comic book shops in Los Angeles and places like New York and other places that I've been. But I realized that that is a very small selection of the overall world of comic book fandom and that things that I may take for granted as being a certain reality in Los Angeles aren't matched by people who live in other areas. And, And that can be anywhere from as close as the next state over like Arizona or as far as Alaska and certainly in different parts of the world. And having traveled extensively in Asia and Europe, um, especially in the the 1990s and and 2000s, I noticed that the attitudes in many countries are very different, but that the openness in most modern and free societies is um, a bit more accepting, actually, than in the United States. And so maybe it makes sense that in the fiction that we're reading, especially fiction that is ostensibly aimed at a, uh, a juvenile group or juvenile audience, that um, it's going to tend a little bit towards the conservative. And as we see in, in the current election cycle, uh, issues like uh, the right of the individual versus the, um, the right of religious expression, and either way you want to take that argument, and I kind of think that... Uh, a religion doesn't give you the right to discriminate against somebody based on their own life choices. But, um, and I'm sure that I'll get some email about that with people from people who disagree, but that that seems to be a more reflective attitude within superhero comics than in, say, your average Fantagraphics title or your average independent, um, you know, reality-based comic book. And so I'm going to uh, read a little bit of what I wrote back in 2009 and... Um, I've found, as I, as I reread that and prepared to do today's podcast, that a lot of the issues that I addressed, and this is, this is almost six years ago, you know, almost to the month, and not much has changed. 
And there's going to be a little bit of hopefulness there. You know, you can feel a little better that um, certain issues that I'm going to bring up have certainly changed and I think have changed for the better, but other issues I think have gotten worse. So again, when I wrote this, it was following a very recent return to comics after uh, being gone for about 15 years. I had been a voracious collector of comics uh, for most of my life, and as I as I think a lot of people do, as I got older, I, I sold collections and repurchased collections and taste changed, but the nostalgia for the things that I read as a kid became very important to me to, to reclaim. And as I got career-minded and got more money, I was able to afford to buy back a bit of my childhood and got more obsessed with uh, the comic books that I used to read. And I think that has a a bit of an informing quality onto uh, current and ongoing tastes. But also, I think as we become as we become more mature, our, our tastes change certainly, and we can recognize if we go back and read something that was written twenty or thirty years ago that the attitudes reflected in those things have changed, um, not only within the medium but in our own personal view, and probably within the personal view of the person who wrote it. And you know, I I think it wouldn't be a surprise to say that in the interim of being gone for 15 years and coming back relatively around 2008-2009, that the stories of that last decade and a half had eclipsed the best stories that preceded it, but on average there seemed to be less poorly written comics and the middle to high quality titles were far more common than they used to be. The artwork had seemed to have reached a, a really elevated sense of illustrated flow. Certainly the color got a lot better. Certainly the lettering got more um, uniform. And of course, there have always been great artists. And some of the great artists of the past's work have has not been uh, eclipsed. But I think that the really, really good comic art is a lot more common now than it was. And the good to uh, above average comic book writing is much more common than it was. I, I still have favorites. I, I still rank The Watchmen as among one of the greatest comics ever written, and certainly there's other works by Alan Moore and, and, and Frank Miller and um, you know Chris Claremont even, I think, that uh, are as good, if not better, than a lot of the really great contemporary works. Um, and you can include Neil Gaiman and Grant Morrison, although I think that each of them have also produced work that eclipses the best of the previous era and, and continues to sustain the level of, I think, um, perceived quality, that other people who come into the hobby will often gravitate towards those authors first and then find themselves asking, uh, as many classical music aficionados do after hearing Beethoven's Ninth, well, wow, this was really great. What else is like this? And it becomes kind of a springboard for entry. Some people come at it from uh, reading non-superhero comics for the first time and Someone eventually talks him into reading this great superhero comic, which is nothing what you expect a superhero comic to be. And certainly those surprises are constantly happening in the medium. And I think that superhero comics in particular are most derided for being superhero comics, that the, the medium that they're created in involves a specific setup that most people are familiar with. And when people break the rules too much, it's not accepted. But when they take an accepted formula and bring it into an area intelligently that uh, perhaps it hasn't gone before, that they're really rewarded and embraced uh, by the fandom. And certainly up until the last maybe 10 or 15 years, 
the fandom and collector base for superhero comics was the greatest in the entire comics medium in the United States. And when you get out of the United States, that changes, of course, and, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But before we get too far ahead of ourselves, I want to go ahead and uh, take a, a little break here for uh, our advertisers to, to talk to you and uh, some of the issues that we may be advertising on the other programs on the station. And so uh, I'll be back in just a few minutes to carry on with the beginning of really the subject of observing gay superheroes. Hey guys, it's Briars. Just want to tell you what's going on down at uh, Meltdown Comics in Hollywood. We got Meltology. Meltology is a monthly comics jam at Meltdown every third Tuesday of the month. Here's how it works. Show up at the Melt at 7 p.m. and draw a page of whatever you want. At 9.30 p.m., we'll collect all of the art and $3 for printing costs. When you come to the next month's comics jam, you'll get a zine with everyone's contributions inside. There is no set theme and all skill levels are welcome. Last but not least, Meltology contributors get 10% off their Meltdown purchase on the night of the event. Go to at Meltology on Twitter or Facebook if you have any specific questions. Ask for Chuck. And that is at Melt underscore Thology. Welcome back to Pod Sequentialism. I'm your host, Matt Kennedy. We're recording, of course, live here at Meltdown Comics. And our subject today is observing gay superheroes. So as I mentioned before the break, I had been on a hiatus for about 15 years from, from reading comics. And when I came back around 2008 and 2009, and I started to become voracious in catching up on all that I had missed, and we're talking about everything from the Ultimates to a lot of Neil Gaiman's um, non-Sandman work and a lot of Grant Morrison's work in superheroes with Batman and certainly All-Star Superman, which I think is one of the greatest comics ever written, personal opinion. But um, it coincided with the influx of a lot of television writers in the comics medium. And this seemingly, at least to me, brought across a straight-across-the-board improvement since sitcoms and dramas that develop talent requires long-term plot development and at least a, something of an emotional connection between the characters and the audience. Uh, it is a visual medium. And it's always been thought, and to uh, sometimes to very poor effect, that comic books make a great template for screenplays because they're such a visual media and because they involve um, a, a story and it's very much like a script format. But you know, the greatest of comics have used the medium to to bring the story further in a way that another visual media could not. And certainly, as technology gets better. Uh, these uh, these separation lines become less and less, and so something that we may have thought as previously being unfilmable becomes filmable. Now, with all this talent coming in from TV and movies, you'd think that there'd be as much diversity in comic books as on television, but there isn't. And you know, as I mentioned, one out of five people on the planet is gay. But where are all the gay superheroes? Well, certainly there've been a few. If you go back to 1992, North Star from the Marvel Comics title Alpha Flight, uh, which is basically the B-list Canadian X-Men, came out of the closet and there was a lot of media hype. Um, but he was far from a prominent superhero and the incident was seen as a publicity stunt to work an AIDS plotline into the Marvel Universe. And of course, shortly thereafter, there was the kind of famous um, issue of the Hulk that involved an AIDS sto story. And this was the first time that that had been presented in mainstream comics. And one of the few times in... Um, really in media that it 
reached a wider audience that perhaps wasn't aware of it. Um, to people who were born after the Reagan era, they may be surprised that while the AIDS epidemic happened throughout the Reagan administration, never once did President Reagan mention AIDS or HIV or anything to that effect while he was in office. It wasn't until um, George H.W. Bush, um, Reagan's vice president, became president that a president of the United States even mentioned the issue publicly. So this um, little game of catch-up that happened in the early 1990s had a carryover into comics, and it was almost like this invisible veil had been lifted and um, subjects rooted in, in uh, AIDS and HIV, which had previously been seen as a gay-only uh, disease and was originally called GRIDS, uh, gay-related uh, immunodeficiency syndrome. Um, it, people realized that it was uh, bigger, bigger than that, that uh, intravenous drug use was um, rapidly overtaking uh, sexual contact as the, the number one transfer of the disease, and certainly uh, blood transfusions. And there was a, a very major case in which an American uh, blood bank knowingly sold infected blood to um, European blood banks, uh, resulting in um, probably a loss of millions of lives and a multi-billion dollar lawsuit. But in 1992 in comics, this was still a very hot topic issue. It was very new to be coming forward. And it seemed like the, um, the advent of the gay superhero was going to immediately be a sort of uh, delivery mechanism for this other hot topic issue. And that's unfortunate. Um, I mean, that would be like today uh, developing an Asian hero to even a bird flu plot line. Or, um, you know, insulting possibly as adding a black hero uh, just to give him sickle cell anemia. It's, it's sort of, that's how in poor taste this was seen in the day. And this is, you're talking about 23 years ago. And it would be 10 years from that point before Marvel would introduce another gay character. And 11 or 12 before they got it right. So in both instances, the editorial department wisely opted to develop sexual preference from the very beginning when they decided to tackle it again. And in 2002, Marvel brought back the Rawhide Kid as part of their Marvel Max imprint, uh, introducing the first openly gay comic book character to star in his own title. Um, the Max line, the Marvel Max imprint, was a line of comics intended for mature audiences, comprised mainly of hyper-violent versions of existing Marvel Universe characters like the Punisher and Daredevil. And the Punisher um, comic, which was bound recently there, thereafter, into a, an omnibus edition was uh, the Garth Ennis storyline was incredibly hyper-violent. Um, if you're a fan of that type of comics, I mean, this is sort of like the most ridiculous um, edge-of-the-world violent comic imaginable that would take that kind of ridiculous, gritty, disgusting, actually, uh, extreme violence and mix it with some pretty deep issues. And Garth Ennis is definitely a very talented writer, but I think that one of his main major shortcomings has been uh, his his writing of gay characters, uh, bordering almost, not just on insensitive, but almost on insulting. And I have great respect for him as a writer in other regards. And I think that the Preacher comic book was, was groundbreaking. Um, it did pander a little bit to a slight immaturity in that um, you know language was, was used in a way that would only be entertaining in comics. And that became hard to translate uh, the numerous attempts to get that onto the big screen from that era in the mid-90s till now, and it seems like uh, that is going to be made as a television show, and it's going to be in the hands of, um, 
I know a couple of young actors who uh, um, uh, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> There's a, a little bit of a, I guess, uh, skepticism about whether or not they're going to be able to pull it off. I wish them the best. But I mention it because this line was um, seen mainly as being, though listed as for mature audiences, far from mature. You know, there's a lot of puns, euphemisms, uh, blatant innuendo, and in Rawhide Kid, it was just rife with general poor taste. You know, it wisely took place outside of the general continuity. It was a five-issue miniseries. It had low sales. It proved to be very unpopular with comic readers. And um, the only real claim to fame that you can give it is that it's a gay cowboy two years before the release of Brokeback Mountain, um, proving that it was ahead of the zeitgeist, even if it was handled just incredibly poorly. Now, um, a bit later than that, in The New Mutants, um, Volume 2, writer Christina Weir not only opted to have uh, the gay teen character Annalie come from an accepting home, which was never addressed before in comics, but developed a mentoring relationship between that character and North Star, and they started to handle the North Star character a little bit better. And it didn't seem like merely a plot of convenience. There had been widespread fear of mutants in the Marvel Universe. It's, it's been a metaphor for the lack of acceptance faced by minorities, uh, the disenfranchised, uh, definitely homosexuals. And I know when I was a kid, um, and you're talking about the late 1970s and early 1980s, and people in my circle of friends were becoming adults at the same time I was, and, and people would, would start to realize you know, that their, their sexuality didn't fall within strict heterosexual uh, lines, and they always identified with the X-Men. And I had a very good friend who very much identified with Nightcrawler, that um, this character who was pictured in the comic books as being not just a, um, a mutant who could hide um, their, their secret of superpowers, but it was unavoidable. Um, Nightcrawler could not appear in any version of himself other than what he was. And there was a real kinship and understanding with a character who was just out there. Um, and certainly in, in his case, not by choice, but that it became a character that you could identify with um, anytime you felt you were disenfranchised or visibly different. It could be if you were, you know, um, fatter or thinner or awkwardly tall or, um, you know, short and, and if you were the victim of bullying, that a character like Nightcrawler, the fantasy was that he was going through that same type of bullying that perhaps you were, um, he, of course, could disappear and trans, you know, transport from one place to the other, which is a, very much a fantasy element of someone who wants to leave the environment that they're in. And so I think that the, um, the multi-tiered um, combination of appearance and superpower was very well presented by Chris Claremont, um, you know, originally drawn by uh, Dave Cockrum and then really carried forward under the, um, the pencils of John Byrne through what many consider to be the, one of the greatest story arcs of uh, the 1970s and 80s and uh, the focus of at least two of, of the X-Men films and then I think as these the two X-Men franchises are joining in film they're, they're starting to even more get into this kind of uh, postmodern take on the Chris Claremont um, Days of Future Past line that film came out last year is quite good if you know the film I encourage you to read the comics 
But um, this relationship that was presented through writer Christina Weir in Volume 2 of New Mutants between uh, North Star and Annalie was the perfect platform for criticizing the obvious but infrequently discussed dangers of training kids to take on adult responsibilities as part of a superhero team. And the reason there are teenage superheroes is because a lot of marketing was done, you know, back in the 1940s. They understood that kids were reading comic books in great numbers. And as the sales started to slip from superhero to more lurid comics like um, crime comics and horror comics, that they felt that putting youth characters that the audience could identify into the stories would yield greater sales. And, And that proved to be true. And so you get characters like uh, Bucky in, in Captain America, Robin in, in Batman, and of course the whole Marvel family. Um, and it, it would become more common throughout the 1940s and, and 50s, and then it would lull and come back in the 1970s. But this, um, this idea that um, you can use the characters in comics to be the same age as the demographic to discuss uh, things that both are going through, one in a fictional universe and one in the real universe, it opens the door to more interesting stories. And even those 1940s stories that uh, appeared in comics were in some ways reflective of things that maybe weren't being talked about on other media. Certainly before television, um, you didn't see a lot of newsreels about uh, juvenile delinquency. And when the, the films were being produced that uh, we think of as you know kind of juvenile delinquency, um, you know, PSA-type films, um, which we laugh at now because they seem so quaint and they're dealing with them, uh, it was being addressed much more head-on in comics. And like I say, not just in superhero comics, but in the crime comics. And also in the strips, there's a, a great um, sequence in the, the very long-running Gasoline Alley strip, which addresses uh, teen-on-teen homicide as early as the 1940s. And that's that's a pretty big deal. And when we, we think about events of the, of the last, you know, 10 or 20 years, whether you talk about Columbine or you talk about um, very, very recent events of, um, you know, lone gunmen who are often in their teens or early 20s and um, taking on just unspeakable acts of, of violence, that there's a precedent for that. And not in the way that I think media is often blamed, but that the media has reflected the reality rather than the reality reflecting the media. And again, that's probably a theme for a whole different show, and we'll see if, if it's something that we touch on. But um, Annalie was, was still just a supporting character in this, in this team book, as had been all subsequent gays in the Marvel Universe. Now, over at DC, the track record wasn't much better, and, and it was perhaps worse for a very long time. Ahead of Marvel on the openly gay hero stakes, Steve Englehart introduced Extraño, uh, an effeminate Hispanic man whose name means strange in Spanish, in 1987 in Millennium, which, like Alpha Flight at Marvel, was a B-list title at best, and he was used to usher in an HIV storyline in which he contracted the disease during a fight with an AIDS vampire, I'm not making this up, called the Hemogoblin instead of Hemoglobin. Uh, that was discarded like a bad idea after the cancellation of the New Guardians comic in a Green Lantern story that saw the entire Guardians team devoured by the island-eating villain Entropy. And if that sounds ridiculous, it was even less believable in print. But at DC's Vertigo imprint, there have been many more stories told outside the regular superhero continuity that involved or revolved around gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender characters 
but within the hero books, any story involving gay characters has been in the vein of the crying game, whereby one minor player falls in love with another minor player who turns out to not be what they claimed, therefore not addressing homosexuality as an intentional choice. And more insulting than not addressing the issue is the implication that it could only be the result of some form of trickery. Uh, we saw that in a very lauded series called Camelot 3000, which has amazing uh, Brian Boland artwork and has um, you know a very famous Arthurian romance um, in which the reincarnated characters are both female. And this is a, a really common theme that whenever the idea of homosexuality is put forward in a comic, um, and it's and it has a ratings-minded um, production behind it. It's generally women that there seems to be a greater acceptance in the fandom, or at least there was 15, 20 years ago, um, behind the idea of lesbians being characters. And I think that this is reflective of the fantasy of um, um, lesbian-themed pornography versus the reality of um, lesbian theme pornography produced for women that the the characters in the comics are very much drawn for uh, the lingering gaze of a male audience and um, in the differences between the two types of of films that the women look completely different that there's this kind of Barbie doll image that's produced for men to consume um, you know what you'd call girl on girl type of video as opposed to um, pornography produced by women for women and it's it's very different and um, you know I, I don't want to sound like we're in a sweeps week and I'm not going to dwell too much on on the topic of pornography but it's indicative of the society that we're in that there's something somehow less threatening about two gay women than about two gay men especially in the sequential arts uh, now we talked about the Green Lantern that DC had, and it had its greatest success in addressing homosexuality from the pages of a superhero comic, but um, that's under the, uh, the direction of writer Judd Winnick. And this comes later than the, um, the really bad stories that uh, I was just talking about. Um, you know, Judd Winnick was actually on the, the MTV reality show, uh, really the pioneer of, of modern reality shows, the Real World. Uh, I think it was the third season. It was in San Francisco. He was a cartoonist. Um, it was a very long time between his appearance on that show and his success actually in comics. And his major success was um, in producing a graphic novel called Pedro and Me, which he wrote and illustrated about his friendship with AIDS activists and Real World co-star Pedro Zamora. But um, when he did make his break into superhero comics, his run on Green Lantern addressed several issues that affected the LGBT community, including gay bashing, and that predates all of the Marvel stories that were, you know, I've spoken about thus far. And when you know Judd left Green Lantern to to write Green Arrow, he introduced the first prominent superhero with HIV in a remix of a classic sidekick storyline centered around intravenous drug use. So recapturing that amazing era of the the Neil Adams. Um, you know, Green Lantern, Green Arrow stories and told it with a modern point of view and done really well. So with this influx of other talent that came into the industry, it's still been very rare that the subject of, of gays, lesbians, bisexuals, transgender people has been handled well. And as we start getting a little bit closer, you know, into the last seven or eight years, 
we see that there are exceptions and that the writing is getting better and that the sensitivity level is, is a little bit more attuned to um, what people in the community would want to see in print as opposed to it being used as a sort of sleight of hand for exploitation or for the butt of a bad joke. And if you look at television in the 70s and in the 80s and you see um, comedy programs or even variety shows or game shows that would center around celebrities, there would be a lot of the type of humor that is not quite so funny anymore. That uh, it's very much of its time. It's um, very limited by its worldview and by the the mindfulness of of the performers of the time. A lot of times as a knee-jerk reaction to masking perhaps their own behavior in that day. That because being gay was not a widely accepted thing that gay performers would sometimes resort to kind of um, uh, a gay baiting humor, um, you know, a, a downplay by protestation, you know, as, as you may recall from your Shakespeare. But um, in Judd's storyline in Green Arrow, he, uh, he introduced the first prominent superhero with HIV and he won multiple awards from the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation. And that's, that's a huge step. And that occurring when it did really did open the doors for more interesting, realistic, sensitive, um, well-rounded storylines because people saw that you could write this in an appropriate way and you could benefit not just from industry awards but also from a good readership. But writers like Judd Winnick are rare. You know, like most comic book writers, Judd's a Caucasian heterosexual male. Uh, most comic scribes, including those who seemingly win or get nominated for comic book industry awards year in and year out, simply do not know how to write gay characters. And I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that most writers can't write women either. And I'm not just talking about female superheroes, but women in general. If you look back at the, the years of Lois Lane um, stories, the years of even Mary Jane Watson, who's a slightly more independent-minded uh, female, she still wasn't a very well-rounded female until recently. And it's not that it's necessarily a, a case that there aren't a lot of women writers, but, um, and I think that, you know, some women writers have a problem writing strong female characters too. I don't think it's, it's just because, uh, comics is seen primarily as a boys club uh, or that juvenile plots and sophomoric humor is not only accepted but rewarded um you know there is a time and place for everything and i admit that sometimes when i read a comic book i'm looking only for pure neanderthal action but enough is enough you know neil gaiman's sandman comic book brought a lot of female readers into the hobby of comics and at the end that book resulted in the loss of a great deal of leadership when it was over because there was nothing else for that female readership to read. You know, the erratic publishing schedule of books like Love and Rockets had frustrated male and female readers alike, and uh, people would enter and leave the hobby regularly, as did I. And it's been the crossover of Japanese manga with mainstream American comics that's brought the majority of young female readers back to the hobby. But there have only been a handful of comics that have even attempted to draw female readership among American audiences, you know, not translated media. You know, certainly you have to uh, talk about the Luna Brothers. Their Ultra was a great Sex in the City take on superheroes. Their Sword is as good as any vigilante comic out there. But female readers equal greatly expanded profits. This is a 
unfortunately and exceptionally undercatered to market. Half of the population are women, and yet it seems like the comics industry is going after such a small percentage of them. And I mean, we could talk extensively on female superhero costumes as opposed to male superhero costumes. Um, you know, the presentation of the degree of athleticism. I mean, come on, if you look at women who are great athletes, their body styles are completely different from the body styles you see on superhero female characters in comics. It's, it's a complete disconnect. Um, to a lesser degree, that's also true of males, but it seems to also be directed in a very specific way. I'm not going to win any friends at the editorial level with this statement, but I believe it to be true. The guys in charge have made it as difficult as possible for new writers to enter the trade. And I don't know whether it's a fear of replacement or megalomania, but the superhero writers for a long time have only known macho, and it got stale. And it's not that different now than it was five years ago. But even five years ago, it was completely different than it was five years before that and five years before that, and for the 40 years that preceded it, that only in the last decade have we been able to chart um, in half decades uh, a recreation of the medium in at least an attempt to welcome in new ideas and to break new ground and to be more accepting and to not cater to this notion of um, male heterosexual uh, dominant society and a, and a white dominant society at that within comics because the fact that ethnicity is addressed as little or had been I should say until the last five years had been addressed so little that um, I know in the 70s I had um, friends of color who identified more with green skinned characters than um, the the African-American characters that were catered to them, that comics like the Black Panther were so poorly written that it was much easier to um, to identify with alien characters. Um, certainly characters in the Inhumans and um, some of the, the characters that were uh, in Chris Claremont's X-Men, and not just of the team, but um, ancillary characters, were better written and more representative of a sort of ethnic experience. But even there, you have, you know, the ethnicity is is so stereotypical. The only black character in the X-Men um, in the 1970s was from Africa. She wasn't an African-American woman. She was from Africa. Um, the other ethnic character was a Native American. And I probably, I, I mean, I don't think I'd be alone in thinking that the reason Thunderbird was brought into the X-Men is because the Billy Jack films were so popular at that time. So rather than addressing, you know, the um, the discarded uh, na- uh, nature of how Native Americans were addressed uh, throughout the 1960s and previously, certainly, um, but also the 1970s and into the 1980s, we have this kind of um, stereotyped, Native American character, and again, that would be corrected in Marvel's New Mutants uh, later where you had a different Thunderbird, more Native American characters, a much more rich cultural identity given to those characters, a greater sensitivity to the, uh, the nuance of, of Native American um, heroism than had previously been put forth 
which uh, was only in the 1970s a step above Tonto and the Lone Ranger serials. So I think we're going to take a little break here again to hear from our our, uh, our sponsors, a little station identification, if you will, for our podcast. And uh, we'll be back in just a few moments with uh, a little bit more on gay superheroes. Loot Crate, Comic-Con in a Box. This is a monthly subscription service where, because of their iconic partners, each box is packed with exclusive items. There are different plans to suit your needs, and when you enter the promotional code MELTDOWN, you will get $3 off your crate. Check it out at LootCrate.com. Welcome back to Pod Sequentialism, recorded live at Meltdown Comics and Collectibles. I am Matt Kennedy. I am your host, uh, author of the Pop Sequentialism catalog, um, and uh, maintainer of the, the Pop Sequentialism traveling exhibition of comic book art. Now, I think that one key issue to, to, to push when addressing how diversity has perhaps not been handled uh, well in the past, and again, we're, we're going to uh, reach a better place on that, and, and I'll be talking about some of the ways in which we have recently, but I think a big challenge was that there were only about three or four writers that were seeming to write every single book at both Marvel and DC um, for a very, very long time. And in the early 2000s, the kind of massive multi-title crossover became a huge business. And that necessitated that all superheroes every six to 12 months were tied together with a single storyline and audiences would have to purchase a large assortment of titles in order for that storyline to make sense. And that's good business because publishers ship more units on books with low numbers, but over time it leads to drop-off on the books that were already selling well. And it alienates new customers because there's no jump-in point. If you have to go back and buy 32 back issues to make sense of a story when you're in the middle of it, um, there's not a lot of reasons for you to say yes to that. Uh, And there's, of course, been a new trend of the last 10 years where people have stopped buying monthly comics knowing that there's going to be a bound edition released at a certain point. Um, of course, sometimes the um, the pricing on those books is out of step with the pricing of the original comics. Sometimes it's cheaper to buy the comics. Sometimes it's cheaper to wait for the, the bound edition and certainly for the trade paperback. So if you don't care about um, the, the paper stock and the cover stock and you just want to read the book, um, Smart Money says you can wait. But that attitude may lead to the cancellation of books if people aren't buying them meaning that they never get bound. So you got a little bit of a catch-22 there. You know, I don't want to I don't want to generalize, but if these crossovers um, bother the male consumers, they drive the females absolutely batshit. If you see women incessantly flip through channels on their remote control, uh, you're not living in the world I do. There's a high level of ADD in male young adolescents, but uh, female consumers commit to titles and generally stick by them. That means increasingly um, both genders are following creative teams, not necessarily the characters, which makes crossover nonsense even less advised. But the numbers don't lie, and that's how the corporations make decisions. It's, it's with numbers. It's a numbers game. So it's important if you're reading something that you feel is groundbreaking or speaks to you personally or, or supports a demographic that you identify with, associate with, or support, that you support that product. Because if it fails, it will be seen as a systemic failure. 
and that means no repeat. Um, very similar to not watching a television show. It gets canceled. Uh, comics often get canceled. This is not new. This has been happening since comic books have been around. And, you know, I hate to be in a position to say I told you so on anything. And the victim becomes good taste. If you don't support good stuff, they're going to keep selling you bad stuff. It's just, it's just how it is. But, you know, what we're seeing is that you're less likely to see books dedicated to well-written gay characters until the writing speaks to that audience. And I'm not sure that there are a lot of comics that are actively seeking a gay audience, except for possibly Archie Comics, which has made huge strides in the last 10 to 15 years, but especially in the last seven, to really embrace a wide um, berth of, of audience that it's as inclusive as a comic can be. It's actually very well written for uh, people who haven't been reading Archie and are only reading superhero comics. It's not the Archie that you grew up on. It's, it's, it's a very different thing, and it's, it's really quite good. Often wins industry awards, and the arts is as good as it's ever been, and the stories are a lot more relevant. You know, we're talking, when I wrote this originally in 2009, there was really only one gay character starring in their own title, and that was Batwoman in Detective Comics. And that was a really good comic. And then the rebranding of DC's Question, whose real-world alias of her name Montoya was in a sexual relationship with Batwoman, represented what percentage of comic heroes overall? 5%? 2%? I mean, not surprising when you consider how few comics are marketed to women, as I said, who represent more than 50% of the population. Now, this is a, it was a great writer team, a writer-artist team working on on, uh, on both books, actually. And you would think that the popularity of that would, would inspire a, a few people to make creative decisions to make things a little bit more inclusive, and it did. So that's good news. You know, that is a stride. This is what I'm talking about. When you see something go from 40 years of the same thing with a few exceptions to a, a, a slight, you know, actually, well, a giant leap forward, but a leap forward that when you look back looks like a crawl, only five years after, and then five years after that, it's another quantum leap. But we've seen more presentation of LGBT heroes, and to varying effect, but you've seen good stuff. You know, Wolverine's son, uh, Dakin, is written by Gerard Way, um, and then, you know, maybe not quite as uh, well, Moon Dragon, an openly bisexual female character. Um, Warren Ellis's authority had Apollo and Midnighter, which again, I mean, there's, it, there's split opinion on whether or not that's uh, a positive uh, representation. But, um, you know, New Mutants, The Runaways, Young Avengers, All New X-Men, you're talking about Karma, um, Zovin, um, Hulkling and Wiccan, and of course the, the recent slightly ham-fisted outing of Iceman. But um, that still doesn't jibe with real-world percentages. You're talking about a handful of characters as opposed to a righteous 20%. And that does carry over into ethnicity. Um if you look at a city like Baltimore with a African-American majority population or uh, Detroit or Chicago, um, any stories that take place in these cities should, should reflect that. If there's a, a comic that takes place in Chicago, it should be reflected in the people that you see in the background in the city, that it should be very noticeably a portion of, of the population. And the danger, of course, in, in telling a sequential story, and, and comics are really 
uh, detective stories and superhero drag that if you're only going to present a portion of the population to represent them, there's the danger that they'll be represented poorly. So I don't want to read a comic where it does take place in a city with a a um, a minority majority population if that minority population who is the majority in that city are presented as, as entirely criminals. If it's only a, a presentation of of crime in the underworld, or drug dealing, or you know whatever other possibly uh, defamatory industry, um, but to avoid it completely is such a cop out. And as I said, you know we're going to be addressing race uh, possibly in, on on the next podcast, but uh, it's a very big subject, and I think a lot of what separates specifically American comics from the rest of the world is that if you go to Tokyo, you know, sequential illustrated storytelling is huge. It's bigger than the United States. The aggregate of titles of manga sold in Japan, which has a population of, I think, one-fifth of the United States, um, and they probably have five times as much circulation. And, and I, I'm sure that that is a, a very modest um, number. But you'll see women on the subways reading manga. It's just the something people do. They, they read these, these small, easy-to-carry comic books. They don't drive as much in Japan as, as they take the subway or public transportation. And so there's a lot more opportunity to sit down and read stuff. I also think that the... The difference in crime will affect how much attention you can spend not being aware of your environment. And so that can be a factor in um, whether or not you read when you're on the subway. But people who read on the, the subways and buses in America tend to read novels and not read comic books. And it could be that one thing holding back gay superheroes is a fear of a very vocal minority which in this country is what can be seen as the religious right wing or just the um, exceptionally conservative. It's, that's like letting a small, closed-minded portion of the population call the shots for the rest of the country. And uh, I don't think we should let them do that. I think you know we should really be vocal and write letters and send emails and gather petitions and uh, not let one squeaky wheel you know, get, all, get all the grease which um, could be a bad analogy, uh, analogy, I apologize. But you know what I mean? If, if you sit silent on the sidelines while ill-intentioned people misrepresent and misinterpret ancient theology books to call the shots in your life, you're going to be sorry. And I am a huge supporter of, of religious freedom, but I think that your freedom stops at the point where you start to impede on the freedom of another. I think that's a pretty good definition of freedom. And... You know, I'm not suggesting that we demand the outing of Spider-Man or Superman as gay. Um, but I do think the diversity of our own world should reflect in the comics that we read. There should be more people of color. There should be more characters that reflect the rich religious diversities of this country in a positive way, in a non-salacious, um, non-headline reflective uh, demagoguery. And there are books intended for all age ranges, and I understand that, but one or two should cater to free-thinking adults. And I think that superheroes are a great analogy for the struggles of all people, and so more suited than any other medium 
for tackling important issues in a way that can be presented as heroic. Because certainly, if I think of the heroes of my life, I'm not thinking of Superman. I'm thinking of Martin Luther King. I'm thinking of Bobby Kennedy. I'm thinking of Louis Pasteur. You know, these are real people. These are real people that lived in and and did great things, and they did great things for other people. And you know, obviously, in the case of Martin Luther King, you're talking about somebody who had to address in a very different way than than we address race today a type of discrimination that is unthinkable to people who have grown up in a civilization after that. But as a white guy talking to you on a podcast in the city of Los Angeles, I can't begin to tell you what the struggles of African Americans in, you know, Baltimore are like. I can be as empathetic as I can be. And I can talk to people. And that's how you learn about different cultures as you engage them and you ask questions and you find common ground because you know under our skin we're all exactly the same we're all homo sapiens we're all human beings and there's way more things that we have in common than what we don't have in common and once you take you know ideology off the table there's really not a lot to argue about so you know come on people let's uh let's get this together I'm going to take one more break and then we'll be back for the conclusion of the, the first part of our, uh, our view on gay superheroes and diversity in comics more specifically. But uh, let's hear a word from our sponsors and uh, speak again for the last time on this subject after the break. Melt you, the school at Meltdown where they teach you the skills to make comic books. Some of the current classes include creating comics, drawing comics for kids, and the art of inking. Coming soon, there will be classes for short film writing, drawing basics, and kids make zines. Go to meltcomics.com and enroll now. Hello and welcome back to Pod Sequentialism. I'm your host, Matt Kennedy. We're recording live at uh, Meltdown Comics and Collectibles where uh, there's always something going on. So if you hear a, a kind of a noise in the background, understand that uh, there quite possibly is a party in the next room. Now, when I originally wrote the article that uh, has become the source of this this podcast, and it was back in 2009 for uh, Forces of Geek and the Manufacturing the Media column that I had there for three years, um, I got a lot of comments on it in the comment section. And generally, any column that was written that wasn't specifically poll-oriented didn't get a lot of comments. What I was surprised is that the comments were really kind of base that I got the types of comments that I really didn't expect I would get on a comic book forum, that I've always thought of of comic book readers as being um, a bit more understanding, I suppose, than maybe the uh, the wider spread of the population. Um, you know, I, I played sports in high school, but I didn't play football. Um, I also got pretty good grades, and I read comic books. And I think that that's probably an experience that a lot of people who read comics have. But, um, you know, while it's been seen as a, as a hobby, you know, with, whether it's a geek or nerd or whatever kind of pejorative term that you want to throw about, I would assume that because of the connection in the community to each other and being sort of a, having this kind of secret of our own, this, this medium, you know, the love of comic books, the love of superheroes, the love of science fiction or horror movies, that, um, that, that would kind of unite us and that that would be enough to be able to... Uh, overcome any kind of what I think are petty squabbles about this, that, or the other thing. And I found that uh, that's not the case. 
And again, maybe it's because I, I grew up in the Northeast and it's it's a little bit more, I don't want to say democratic, democratic or liberal, but that there seemed to be a little bit less of the type of knee-jerk agitation that you may encounter in different parts of the country. And, and every place has its highs and lows, and I understand that. But um, I'm going to read you a couple of the comments that I got to, uh, to the same topics that we're talking about right now. And this was a mere six years ago. One person said, I'm not going to read their, their, their name. The sexual orientation of a character doesn't add nor would it detract from my experience whatsoever. A well-written story, character development, and proper mood are all that's required in my opinion. As for the rest, let the artist be free to unleash their imagination upon us in any manner he or she sees fit. And then they close with, um, you know, by the way, Matt, I didn't realize you were homosexual. Congratulations. And I'm not. And I wasn't sure if that was kind of a, a needle or was intended as a needle, and I wouldn't take it as one because... I wouldn't consider it any type of insult, but I feel like the person who wrote it did. And I think that it was, it's that type of reaction that we encounter. And there were some, some letters back and forth. And so I, I do know the writer's intent, and I'm not going to read the entire correspondence, that, um, that justified my, my thought that maybe they were being a little bit um, judgy. And doing it in a public forum as a, as a means to try and rouse embarrassment. Now, in order to be embarrassed, you have to be embarrassable, which means that you have to um, be embarrassed about the way that you feel about an issue or the way that you address things. And I've spent a lot of my adult life not really caring about what other people would think. And, you know, to, to, uh, to great appeal and, and to, to some lesser detriment, but that you can only be embarrassed if you allow yourself to be embarrassed. What someone else thinks of you stops the second that their words leave their mouth. And how you handle that is a great deal to do with how much character you have. And so I, I didn't really uh, give too much of a public response to that. And especially because um, the next comment was absolutely moronic. And I'm going to read you that. This is the next letter. Tokenism is condescending. Why create a character of a certain ethnic background or sexual orientation simply for the sake of doing it? If it adds to the story or is integral to some kind of plot line, fine. But just doing it because there isn't any, and that was in quotes, makes no sense. And then they said this. And, and I mean, the, the beginning of that, I, I understand where they're coming from. Then they said, wait a minute. Why aren't there any comic books about pencils? There need to be more comic books where pencils are the main characters. Again, intended as some kind of sarcasm, but it really doesn't uh, address um, the fact that, um, well, number one, pencils aren't uh, walking about. They're not ambulatory, and we don't experience them in the same way that we experience human beings. But I don't think that the idea that there are characters being created of certain ethnic backgrounds or sexual orientation implies that it's being done just for the sake of it if it's being done well. And certainly I've addressed instances where it was done poorly and it was done specifically for that reason. And now we have examples where it's being done because it reflects the population and reflects the readership. So, um, you know, if my column were about blind superheroes, would people think that I was blind? I don't know. I think there are ample opportunities for comic books to reflect the statistics of the real world, and they currently don't. Comics don't, for the most part, adequately address, in a realistic or non-condescending way, the minority communities of the population, whether they be based on race, creed, or sexual orientation. How can a story be well-written if it doesn't reflect the world in which it's supposed to be set? It would only be tokenism if the writing was bad. 
Otherwise, it would be a well-written story about a large, popular, a large portion of the population. The term tokenism indicates a lack of genuineness and implies the presence of something that doesn't need to be there. I agree it'd be foolish for someone with no interest in a subject to write about it, but there have been several offers by talented writers to develop gay characters that were outright refused by DC and Marvel. When we, I talked to Clive Barker about this a couple of years ago. He offered to develop an entire series of books at Marvel and was told, thanks, but no thanks. I mean, you're living in a fool's paradise if you think that writers haven't been pitching this idea for a long time. Those writers have been few and far between, yes. But the green light on stories about gays have been far scarcer, which puts the burden on the publishers who've been censoring their writers for years. I spoke to someone, and I'm not going to say say who because I, I, I didn't clear um, mentioning this uh, before setting up to do this program, a writer at Marvel in the 70s. And they had intended to make a character, an African-American character, and another character, an Hispanic character. And their editor at the time said that it would be better for all concerned. And I remember this, that turn of phrase specifically. It would be better for all concerned to make those characters aliens, to make them green or blue or red rather than Negro or Hispanic, which were the terms of the era. And uh, his words, not mine. From a standpoint of basic realism, how is it possible that these characters who supposedly live in New York City, Los Angeles, Chicago, and San Francisco, or their fictional equivalents of Metropolis, Star City, and Gotham, don't have friends, family, coworkers that are gay? or black, or Hispanic, or Pacific Islander. That seems like more of a fiction than the idea of them having superpowers, if you ask me. You know, and of course, most of them don't encounter these people, unless they're giving them a beating. You know, for the longest time in comics, the only minority characters you saw were villains. And the, the worst example of this was Asians, that Asians were presented as being, you know, the minions of Fu Manchu. Uh, obviously, we've seen the, um, the, the war era comics that um, present the Japanese as being um, buck-toothed, slanty-eyed, um, comical relief uh, battle fodder, which uh, we understand is, is a terrible thing now. And was created under a, an era of propaganda. But um, if you see it now and you don't get uncomfortable, it's I'd be surprised. The thing is that you are kind of still seeing it. It's just not as pronounced. It's a little bit deeper. It's a little bit under the, under the surface. And um, you perhaps don't think about it. If you are a person of color, maybe you do think about it. Maybe you don't write letters to Marvel or DC about it. You know, maybe you're 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 saying you're staying as part of the status, status quo, and not uh, voicing up about it. And I'm not saying that we should turn into uh, you know what uh, comedians Chris Rock, uh, Jerry Seinfeld, and Larry the Cable Guy 
which is the strangest consensus that I could pull out, uh, all agree that they won't perform on college campuses because uh, the campuses have become too PC and um, they can't say anything that is even slightly off-color or derogatory without uh, getting a campus complaint. And I, I think that's the other bad end of the spectrum. That reactionary politicking, whether it be right-wing or um, left-wing, is, is bad. You know, we got to be somewhere in the middle. But things should reflect the reality. Even in fantasy, it should reflect the reality if it's going to reach the widest demographic, if it's going to be supported. And certainly the films that have done the best at the box office um, have had some element of that to various degrees of success. And certainly we like a lot of things that go boom. And we, we watch a lot of blockbuster films that may be a little bit light on plot, but there is a basic appeal that crosses ethnic, sociological, um, financial, um, sexual borders. And when those things succeed to a degree and offend any group gratuitously and intentionally, there is backlash. That backlash is absent from comic books. You know, I've, I've never encountered a talking pencil, but uh, if one-fifth of the U.S. voting and purchasing population were pencils, their absence would be blatantly and obviously lacking. You'd better believe there would be a very vocal demand for pencil man or eraser head. So uh, to address that uh, large, last, bizarre letter. So as we uh, wind down this podcast, I just want to talk about, I guess, the the obvious, which is happening right now. You know, we've got, um, very recently, we've seen a prominent reality star, a former Olympian, announce her transgenderism, and that's opened up the conversation. But the attitudes within comics haven't advanced along the lines of the general public. We're behind the curve in this industry. We should be ahead of the curve. Comics are an innovative media. Like I said, I used to believe that comic book fans were more sensitive to the, the damage of bullying. But in the last few years between things like Gamergate and some of the hate mail I've seen aimed at female and gay writers and bloggers, it's become apparent to me that the last guy in line really does go home and kick the dog. Bullying is contagious, and it's used by the powerless much more than by the powerful. It's evident on television during the current election cycle, um, politicians saying incredibly ridiculous things in a race to the bottom. It's all over the internet. It's via anonymous comments by cowards. You know, here on our network, um, I've seen some of the ludicrous, uninformed, hateful, blatantly stupid and frightened emails that have been sent to London, who is one of the most intelligent writers on comics, whose Batman podcast, if you're not listening to, you should absolutely be listening to. And I think because her name wasn't immediately evident to gender when she was writing her blog, there were people who didn't realize that the person who knew more about Batman than them was a girl, and it got them a little bit agitated. Well, grow the hell up, kids, because there's a lot of people out there that know a lot more about things than you do, and whether or not they're a man or a woman or Latin, Hispanic, black, white, purple, or whatever, respect them for who they are, what they put forward in the world, and maybe, just maybe, you'll be respected for the same. I mean, the bottom line is that rational people need to get back into the conversation. Don't let the trolls win. Support positive representations of diversity. 
because sales numbers matter. You have to help the, the corporations make the right decisions. We can be a very vocal pressure. We're concerned readers. We buy product. We fund their industry. They have to listen to us. Don't let them listen to the worst among us. Let's get together. Let's raise the industry. Let's make things better for everybody. And on that note, I just want to thank you for listening to Pod Sequentialism. I'm Matt Kennedy. We do this weekly. I invite you to send your feedback. If it's something that uh, really stirs a nerve, we'll read it online. We'll read it on the podcast. We'll address it. So be sure to tune in again for the next Pod Sequentialism podcast. As I said, we're going to be addressing the roles of gender in addition to uh, what we spoke about in issues of diversity among gays and uh, different ethnicities. So until next week, I'm Matt Kennedy. This is Pod Sequentialism.